Now turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 17. Thank you very much for recognizing that I'm one year older. <laughs> Hopefully wiser. <laughs> All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 17. And I am very glad that Jessica chose to have us sing, Speak, O Lord. It's a prayer expressing our desire not just to hear God's word, but to actually embrace God's word in obedience. And the reason I'm grateful is that we will be discussing a very contentious subject. And yes, in case you're wondering, I chose to wait till after the Q&A <laughs> to talk about our affirmations on church and state, religious liberty, and civil government. And the reason why I decided to wait was I realized, you know those Hey RJ forms? I may get a number of them, and I will definitely need time to reflect and pray over the response <laughs> to those Hey RJ forms. And the reason I know I'll need to pray about it is um, I will be following the line that Stan Fowler followed, the approach that Stan Fowler followed when he preached on this same passage last year in June. And I encourage you to listen to that message again. It was very helpful to me in my preparation, and it helped me understand better our affirmations on church and state, religious liberty, and civil government. I think that makes sense because he, he drafted this and we used it as a template. So let's read these affirmations first, and then we'll go into the text. On church and state, both church and state have divinely ordained functions to perform in obedience to God, but the two are not to be confused. The state is responsible to seek public justice for the good of all, not to give a special status to any particular religious community. Religious liberty. Although God calls all people to believe in him and to come to him through Jesus Christ our Lord, this is to be a genuine personal response and not a profession imposed by civil law. Therefore, Every person should have the civil right to practice and promote his own beliefs. And, and that means not just Christians. Please understand. Civil government. Civil government in its various forms is designed by God as a means to protect the welfare and good order of society as a whole. Christians are responsible to pray for those who are given this awesome responsibility and to conscientiously obey the laws imposed by these governing authorities. However, in view of the fact that Jesus Christ is the ultimate Lord of all and the ruler of the earthly authorities, laws which are opposed to the revealed will of Christ must be disobeyed by his followers. But this is the exception, not the rule, and such civil disobedience must occur only when it is regrettably necessary. Now, these statements are generally accepted among Baptists. The point of contention lies in 
how we work out these principles. And, and you know, Blaise Pascal has a great explanation for that. He says, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. Or to put it in biblical terms, we all have pre-existing heart conditions that influence our response to the text. And so as we reflect on 1 Peter 2, 11 to 17, I hope that we would be asking the Holy Spirit to help us grasp the heights of His plans for us and help us to submit to what the Spirit is saying through Peter in the text and how He is challenging our hearts, exposing our blind spots, and calling us to repentance. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, I want you to recognize, first of all, that Peter is framing his discussion of how we relate to governing authorities in terms of our identity. Notice verse 11. We are sojourners and exiles. To be a sojourner is to be a temporary resident. And that is the case for all of us because we are citizens of heaven. As Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And... Peter's words would actually have sounded strange to the original Gentile readers because he is addressing people who were born and raised in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were Gentiles, indigenous to the cities that Peter is addressing. And yet, Peter is calling them sojourners and exiles. Because he is pointing to an essential reality that you and I need to recognize too. It is that salvation completely transforms our identity and allegiances. The fact that God has caused us to be born again into a living hope has also made us into, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2, a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. You may be Canadian. You may have a Canadian passport or whatever passport you carry. You have a dual citizenship. Here on earth, you are a Canadian citizen, but you are also here on earth as a citizen of heaven. And as a result, we are now exiles. And the language of exile means that we are people on the margins. 
It harkens back to the experience of people like Daniel, Ezekiel, and others living in exile in Babylon. They were people on the margins because God has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And the implication of it is that you and I, as sojourners and exiles on this earth, need to be ready to feel like outsiders. Because society's values and standards mock and reject our Lord's standards. We need to embrace our status as sojourners and exiles because we are loved by God. Notice how Peter begins his address by saying, Beloved. He's not just talking about how he loves them. He is reminding you, them, and you and me that we are a people who are the objects of God's love. We are his special possession. He is still in control. And so we need not act out of fear that we would lose our freedoms or that people would take advantage of us. Remember what Daniel 4 says, that the Most High rules over the nations. It was true then. It is still true today. We don't need to act out of fear. Rather, we should be made motivated by the fear of God. Look at verse 17. That's why Peter says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. Fear God is a reference to the concept known as the fear of the Lord. It is the beginning of wisdom, the key to wisdom. It is trusting and delighting in God so that you entrust yourself fully to Him in obedience and dependence. It comes from hearts that are being transformed by the Holy Spirit to desire what God desires. That's why Peter, before he talks about our relationship with government, challenges us. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, that's our pre-existing heart condition. Passions of the flesh refers to our natural self-centeredness and the attitudes and behavior that spring from our sinful pride. Yes, we are in a war, but the war is within the enemy is our sinful selves. Because we, you and I have been born again with new hearts, but we live in the already, not yet, and so there is still that continuing struggle with sin. Case in point, a couple of years ago, someone I knew posted an article that misinterpreted and misapplied Romans 13. I was so annoyed I actually downloaded 10 commentaries on Romans and proceeded to go through each and every one of them. And my ego-driven response was to question my brother's intelligence in not-so-nice words and to write a snarky rebuttal. You see, the idolatrous orientation of our hearts leads us to misapply truth overreact to situations, and misunderstand circumstances. 
I thank the Lord that I did not get the chance to send that rebuttal because I don't think it would have been sent in the right spirit and with the right attitude. It would not have been pleasing to the Lord. But you see, growing in the fear of the Lord is our first necessity because it teaches us to respond to every situation with the grace and humility of Jesus. Because Peter defines our identity in order to reshape the purposes for which we live in this world. I think this is where we have a problem often. We tend to abstract a principle from the context in which it is placed. We tend to abstract our actions from our calling in this world. He is reminding us that the church is first and foremost an embassy of the kingdom of God foreshadowing the new age to be consummated when Christ returns. We are a royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are heralds of the gospel representing our Savior in this world. We are not called to engage in culture war because people are not the enemy. We are actually called to fight for their souls by proclaiming the gospel. And that's why Peter goes on, verse 12, and I'm going to cite it in the NIV because it says it so well. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And you can hear the echoes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, don't you? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But I like what Edmund Clowney says. When Peter tells his hearers to live good lives, he uses a word that can mean beautiful or attractive. And this theme of luminous goodness runs like a thread through all of Peter's exhortation. We are called as followers of Jesus, as his own special people, to demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel through lives of luminous goodness. And our ultimate goal is for people to come to the faith in Jesus. That's why Paul, uh, Peter talks about glorifying God on the day of visitation. They will glorify God because they will have come to faith. But even if they do not come to faith, they will still glorify God. Because they have no excuse. They have seen and heard our witness. And being God's beloved people then, means that we seek to adorn the gospel in the way we interact with society. See, that's the goal. That's the mission. Adorn the gospel. Point people to Jesus as God's beloved community. How do we work that out? Well, look at verse 13. We submit to governing authorities for the Lord's sake. Peter and Paul were well aware of the fallibility and sinfulness of human leaders. Jesus was crucified by the Roman governor Pilate. 
they were living under the reign of Nero. And yet, this is what Peter says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And the language there, some commentators have said, submit yourself to every human, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil. They may be correct. It doesn't change it. Does it? We submit to the rulers of the land for the sake of Christ. Underlying that is what Daniel 4 states that God has providentially put elected officials in power, even if you did not vote for them, even if you would never vote for them, if you'd rather boycott than vote for them. Fine. Providentially, they're there because God put them there to promote public welfare, maintain peace and order, and administer justice. That's what it means when it says they are sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And yes, I agree, they do it very imperfectly, sometimes wrongfully. But as sojourners and exiles, who are ambassadors of the kingdom. We respect the laws of the land. We respect the governing authorities. Because this is the Lord's will. Notice verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, the goal of our submission isn't avoiding conflict. It's, look, even Jesus had enemies. The question is what kind of enemies you have. The goal of our submission is to rewrite society's narrative about Christianity. See, in the first centuries, Christians were accused of spreading disloyalty to the government, disrupting trade, even cannibalism and incest. You might wonder, well, how, how could you be cannibals? Well, Lord's Supper, we'll talk about that next week. What do we say? This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. Uh, so people thought, yeah, these Christians are cannibals. Incest? Well, we call one another brothers and sister, brother and sister, right? And when you marry somebody who is your brother or your sister, that's incest in the eyes of people. People, the Christians were thought of as uh, disloyal and disrupting trade because in Rome, or in, in the Roman Empire, you subscribed to civil religion. Each citizen's job was to keep his God happy. They were okay with you having all sorts of gods. So long as you kept your God happy and therefore preserved the empire from damage. Because when the gods get angry, then they send calamities. But because the Christians refused to honor the gods of the Romans, and they didn't even seem to have a god because they didn't have statues, they thought Christians were troublemakers. In our day, people think we are intolerant, bigoted, and all sorts of stuff. 
Our task as believers is to change the narrative by our good deeds, by lives of luminous goodness. And we don't people prove people wrong to gratify the God, our, our, our egos or avoid persecution. Our goal is, again, to adorn the gospel. And so even when we are challenging the narrative people have wrongly spun about Christians, we are seeking their greatest good. We are seeking to remove obstacles to faith in Christ and seeking to make the gospel more compelling to people. And isn't that what running the sports camp in Australia accomplished? We thank the Lord for the privilege of sending Alexander. I think of that one mom who had been hurt by the church and who now, years later, is willing to send her kids to Northridge because the narrative has changed for her. See, that's our task. And that's our privilege. And at the heart of this, we are following in the footsteps of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in fact... One scholar would say that the gravitational center of this passage is in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In humbling ourselves, in submitting to government, we are following in the footsteps of our king. Now that being said, submission to rulers demands that we exercise creativity out of a proper understanding of what God commands. For example, I, I know a lot of people had a lot of angst following capacity restrictions because they were afraid that they were violating Hebrews 10.25 not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as, the manner, as is the manner of some. So, let's take a step back and look at the text. It's flashed on the screen. First of all, let us recognize the historical cultural context that the author was admonishing people who were deliberately abandoning the fellowship of believers because they were thinking of returning to Judaism. And in doing that, they were weakening the faith of other brethren. Let's just recognize that that's a different situation from what we were facing. Second, we also need to acknowledge the literary context. That's why I've put Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. The full sentence, you, you notice not forsaking, is what you call um, a participle. If you were to diagram, you need to read the full sentence and then diagram it. Full sentence is, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's the main proposition. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, is an aside. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words... The command is to be in loving community. That's what we are supposed to follow. Gathering together is a means to that end because we are embodied creatures. 
The text does not tell us to gather the entire congregation in the building every Sunday. Were that the case, you'd be sinning if you were on vacation, and we will not say that. I would never be able to go on vacation. Look, let's understand. The command is encourage one another. And we have experienced the fact that we do not need to have 100 people in the building to encourage each other, do we? In fact, the restrictions have providentially forced us to be intentional about finding ways to encourage each other outside of Sunday services. It has challenged us to understand the church is not about, not just about 10.30 to 12 in the morning on Sunday. Church is about living together and encouraging each other. In fact, one church plant in Montreal had accountability groups of three to four believers meeting together on, on a weekly basis even before COVID. And so when the restrictions hit, they, flour- they were still flourishing because they were already holding one another accountable and encouraging one another. And that is not to say that gathered worship is not important. It is important. We are embodied creatures who encourage one another best when we are face-to-face with each other. And that's why we need creative flexibility guided by a proper understanding of Scripture. And I look to our brethren in Quebec. They faced greater restrictions than we did. But I had a conversation with the president of Sembeck, Francois Turcotte, and I asked him, what are you guys doing about the vaccine passport? They said, he said, well, you know what? We realized it's not a hill to die on. What they did, instead of defying the government, was to meet outdoors in the middle of winter. So, yes, it was inconvenient. Yes, it was cold. But they demonstrated their commitment to Christ by meeting outdoors so that they feared God and honored the emperor at the same time. Another example, when the mayor of Washington, D.C. ordered churches to go virtual, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. actually decided to rent a field in Virginia across the river from Washington, D.C. because regulations were looser in Virginia. It's about creativity. And they also took the court, the city to court successfully for its uneven um, implementation or enforcement of regulations because they allowed rallies and protests but would not allow churches to meet. And I make a point of that because their actions show that as we submit to government in a democratic society, we also have the privilege and responsibility and ability to hold government accountable to do what is right. But you notice that they exercise that privilege wisely and responsibly through the proper channels. And I will also make the point that Capitol Hill's Baptist Church was not just acting for their own interests. They weren't just asking, demanding that they get to meet. They were looking out for the common good. They were establishing justice for all people not just for themselves. 
And this is where we need to reflect and examine our disposition. Because Peter goes on. Notice verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Let's understand. We must use our freedom in Christ to serve. Our freedom is meant to equip us to serve others, not to please ourselves. And Peter would certainly affirm the words of D.A. Carson. The democratic tradition in the West has fostered a great deal of freedom from Scripture, God, tradition, and assorted moral constraints. It encourages freedom toward doing your own thing, hedonism, self-centeredness, and consumerism. By contrast, the Bible encourages freedom from self-centeredness, idolatry, greed, and all sin, and freedom toward living our lives as those who bear God's image and who have been transformed by His grace so that our greatest joy becomes doing His will. Even if that direction, freedom toward, will not be perfected until the new heaven and the new earth, already the Christian is beginning to glimpse the glory of the words, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, not a salve, a slave. Autocorrect. <laughs> so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The grand paradox inherent in such commitments falls right out of the Bible storyline. That means our greatest freedom is to become slaves to Christ. See, Jesus, our Savior, Master, and Lord, calls us to the joy of humble service. It calls for a radical reversal of values. But I confess, my rebellious, selfish heart resists submission. And so my first objection is always, didn't Peter say we ought to obey God rather than men? And what if the government resists authority or oversteps its authority? Well, Again, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I recognize that I am often tempted to insist on my rights because I want to please myself. If we are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then let us look to Jesus who laid down his rights, who considered his rights and privileges and person as equipping him to serve. Laying down his rights so that he may save us. Then our first question shouldn't be, how do I preserve my freedom? But my question should be, how do I use my freedom to act in such a way that would portray the beauty of the gospel before my neighbors? See, that's the question we ought to be always asking, both now and in the coming days. Because there is no point to meeting in this building 
if we're turning people away because of our actions. Our worship is meant to push outward to draw people in. If we are putting up barriers to the gospel by our actions, then somehow something's getting lost in translation. Peter says, again, we are bond servants. We are slaves of God. And so like Jesus, we give up our rights in order to seek the welfare of people around us. And that's why Peter says, honor everyone. That's an astounding statement. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We love one another because as a church, God intends us to be a model society pointing to the beauty of the world that is to come. We are God's movie trailer showing them what he intends. I think that's why one author said the first political act of the church is to be the church because then we can model to the world around us how we function as a society, as God's new society. And out of reverence for God, we honor all people because we recognize that they are made in the image of God. At our men's breakfast yesterday, Sam pointed out the unfortunate, unwholesome talk that has come from Christians. And it's unwholesome talk directed at people made in the image of God. Brethren, let's understand. If we are being remade into the image of Christ, then it must result in care, in respect, in honor for those who are made in the image of God. And that must break our hearts because these image bearers of God are lost in sin. They need Jesus more than they need freedom. Because the best freedom, the ultimate freedom, is freedom that is found in Christ. That's why we're here. And you will notice that as Peter tells them to honor the emperor and honor everyone. He is subverting the emperor's claim to deity because he's putting the emperor on the same level as every human being. They are all, the emperor is just like everyone else, a creature made in the image of God and therefore worthy also of honor. And the best example I could think of is Daniel. We know Nebuchadnezzar. He was a pagan. He was the one who destroyed Jerusalem. And yet, you notice the heart of Daniel. When he heard the dream, he was just stunned and amazed and almost in tears. If I were in his place, I'd probably be saying, serves you right, Nebuchadnezzar. Wish it would come now. But that wasn't Daniel's disposition, was it? His response to Nebuchadnezzar was, Oh, I wish this was for your enemies. And then he ends by telling Nebuchadnezzar, Please repent. 
that's a very different attitude from what I have and from what I've seen. So I appreciate one of our instrumentalists praying last week for the Prime Minister's conversion as we prayed. See, that's the right attitude of a heart that says, these people need the Lord. See, I think we can sum up Peter's commands to us as acting with what Russell Moore calls convictional kindness, modeled after Jesus' actions. By convictional kindness, we mean that we proclaim the truth just like Jesus, with kindness and gentleness to the tax collectors and prostitutes, while at the same time calling out the hypocrisy and malice of the religious authorities. But I hope that you read Matthew 26, all those woes, if you read it in context, you will realize that the woes are not the angry cries of someone pronouncing judgment, but of someone calling people to repentance, warning of judgment. See, that should be our disposition. It's a lament. As we call people to repentance, we are lamenting over their sin, over their state. And we are calling them to repentance. And in the same way that Jesus did that, we are called to engage society around us with the humility of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. We speak the truth respectfully and kindly so that we, as we present the truth plainly, we are commending ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And like Jesus, we are giving credibility to our words through lives that reflect our love for the people we're addressing. I remember about three or four years ago where the church where I was before was running a basketball camp. And over the seven or eight years before, we had been trying to show the love of Christ to the neighborhood. And one mom came up to the girl who was running our registration for the basketball camp. And she said, you know, I like your church. You're an inclusive church. And you know, inclusive. It's <laughs> a very strange word today. The girl running the camp said, oh, uh, thank you very much. And then she came up to me afterwards. Yo, Purge, she said we were an inclusive church. Well, how should I take that? I said, look, she was saying that in the best possible sense of the word. She was trying to give us a compliment. She was saying we accept people as they are. We show them love regardless of who they are. That's good in as far as that goes. And you know, that same lady who was very happy that we were an inclusive church, we actually had the chance to invite her to one of our other events where we proclaimed the gospel. What am I saying? We build credibility by doing good, by living lives of luminous goodness, by serving the community. And that opens the door for them to willingly hear the gospel. 
She paid to come to one of our events. She even brought a friend. Now, she's not a believer yet, but she has heard the gospel. See, we can't guarantee that our best efforts will save people or even make people agree with us or even like us. Some people might even mock and oppose us because the truth of God is not palatable to people. But I hope you understand, the goal isn't victory. The goal isn't winning the argument. The goal is faithful witness to Jesus. It is the Spirit who changes people's hearts. Not you, not me, not our arguments. It is the Spirit's work taking our work, our words, and bringing faith. Our task is to represent Jesus faithfully, speaking the truth in love that reflects the love that we ourselves have received. Because we recognize that Jesus has already triumphed. We don't have to win. Jesus has won. We eagerly anticipate the consummation of his victory when he returns. And so we can, as representatives of the triumphant king, being transformed by his spirit, we can engage people winsomely trusting that he will use our feeble efforts for his glorious purposes. And we respond to mistreatment with kindness because we are confident that the God who told us to overcome evil with good is righteous and he will vindicate us in the end. All of that to say, the task that God has given us exposes our continuing need for God's transforming grace. I confess that my natural tendency is to be an arrogant jerk, more interested in spouting my opinions and imposing my desires than in serving others. You can ask my kids. <laughs> but here's our hope. Thankfully, Jesus did not just give us his example. Jesus died and rose again for our sins, and he gave us hearts indwelt by his Spirit. And he is actively, even now, renovating our hearts as he convicts us of sin and points us to the standards of his word. So, brethren, let's lean into his transforming work so that our principled submission would point the people around us to the true king who is worthy of their trust and submission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have graced us with your love. Forgive us for so often we forget who we are and we get caught up in responding according to our natural passions. Oh, Lord, we pray, transform our hearts. Give us a passion for Christ. As we know more fully the greatness of your love, help us to overflow in love for one another and in love for those outside of Christ so that we, your people, 
might truly proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is in Christ's name and for his sake.